Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about my conversation today with Denise Getman on our recently released industry talent study. Denise is a partner in our leadership and organizational development practice, where she spends a great deal of her time working with clients to build and deliver customized development programs designed specifically to address many of the issues laid out in the talent study. Well, Denise, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Denise, just to set the table for our listeners that may not have read the study, I would love for you to summarize some of the key takeaways that stood out for you. The survey in general provided insights into the current trends related to talent development, highlighting some key areas of focus, some things that leaders and organizations can and should be focused on to mitigate and navigate some of the talent strategies that we're seeing across the industry. For me, the standout focus was really this concept of a talent cliff. Because I'm sure you've heard, we've all heard people talking about the lack of talent, finding good people, finding people to to fill in work that we've already sold. We've been hearing that forever. This idea of a talent cliff really brought it more into sharp focus, how there are a few things at play that are actually changing to make this more of an urgent issue than maybe it's ever been before. Just in general, the the talent cliff, some of those focus points are really, one, the idea that 93% of the respondents of the survey were reporting difficulties. This is higher than we've seen. Usually we, we see some pretty high numbers here, but this is indicating that there is an uptick in the urgency. People are saying, hey, we need more qualified people. We need to uptick our, our hiring practices. We need to hire more people to do the work that we're currently doing capably, and then also looking into the backlog to fill those gaps. In addition to that, so that's the going up the hill. In addition to that, some of the expectation, the Association of Building Contractors recently estimated that in the construction industry, we'll need to attract more than half a million additional workers this year in order to fill this estimated demand for labor. So that's in addition to what our clients are already seeing as a strain in their talent pool. So we're going up the cliff. We, we need more than we ever have before. We need more even than we thought we did coming up very shortly. As we go down from that cliff, we see a couple of things. One, this estimate that is talked about in the talent study that one in five currently in the industry are over the age of 55. Plus, we're seeing lower numbers of people we're recruiting who are currently in the, in the industry and that are being recruited between the ages of 24 and 54. So we're going to be losing 20 to 30% of the current talent in the industry in the next five years or so because of some of that retirement age, because of some of other competition from other industries, different jobs. So we're seeing that's the cliff part, right? We, we need more and we are anticipating having much less So how do we fill that gap? The final striking thing that I wanted to to mention here at the start is in light of this, most of our clients would say, yeah, we recognize that we have this challenge now and in the future. And so in spite of a lack of the understanding of that current talent capability to manage work and backlog, the percentage of our clients who are actually poised to fill that within their succession planning and intentional succession planning, really taking the opportunity to be strategic in planning for the future. 62% of respondents to this talent survey said, no, we're doing very little to nothing to plan for the future in terms of succession. So those pieces sort of moving together create a pretty big crisis, I think, for the industry and a nice challenge for us to focus on. 
you know, it's interesting. I, I see a lot that the literature refers to the, t the trend of the talent shortage. And uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Jay Bowman, I've, I've heard in speeches and just around the office say things like, I'm not sure I'd call this a trend. This is just a characteristic of our industry. You know, you could go back in our headlines for the last 50 years and there would be headlines talking about the talent shortage. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's been with us. It'll be with us. So kind of given that, I'd, I'd love you know, pick up where you just last left off, Denise. What are some of the dangers you see if we don't address some of these issues that you just mentioned? Well, so I think that's a great point, and Jay's absolutely right. Right, This isn't something that's entered the realm while we were sleeping last night and caught us off guard. We've, we've seen it approaching. It's, it's consistent. I think of it in terms of two things. One, that opportunity, and then also the risk. I think from the opportunity side, in order for us to keep this talent that we desperately depend on, accelerating their capability, arming them with the tools that we know they're going to need to be successful, building an intentional plan for the future. I think the opportunity is at the heart of it to reference Simon Sinek's work is really the infinite game, right? This idea of how do we keep this game going in perpetuity? One of the, the hallmarks of this industry has always been this sort of pressure prompted approach. We're fighting fires. We, we have these projects that are within a time frame that we're trying to win. We're trying to win the work. We're trying to do the work. We're keeping score on how well we've done those things. And every day there's something else jumping up. And that's what makes it an exciting industry. I think the challenge of being in this industry and loving that aspect of the work is that oftentimes we can lose sight of how are we winning this ongoing challenge? The ongoing challenge being setting ourselves up for winning this game, winning the, the war on talent forever, right? To keep it going in perpetuity. So that's, that's the opportunity and it's also the challenge. What happens if we get more, we have more attrition than predicted? So the, the anticipated attrition, that's across the industry. That's, that's best-in-class contractors. That's very sophisticated organizations. That's organizations that do a lot of planning for the future, also including industries or companies that don't do anything or are maybe doing some piecemeal things here and there. So it's across the board. So one of the challenges is, of course, what if the attrition's worse? right? We lose more people than, than anticipated. Or the people that stay aren't equipped or engaged enough to really be successful to do the work at the, at the quality that we're hoping that they can. And so there are, some, there are some best practices that we do see, but those are the challenges. That's the, it goes back to that age-old principle of what happens if we develop them and they, and they leave versus what happens if we don't and they stay. Right. And that's that's a big risk that we have seen across the board for a lot of our clients. They they end up the ones that we wish would stay end up leaving, and the ones we say, you know, you could leave, they end up saying for for the length of their career. You know, I'm smiling as you're mentioning that, and as you talk about the succession and the and the lack of readiness, I'm reminded of two themes I've heard over the years that I found to be uh, mostly true. And one is, you know, the constant is that time marches on no matter what, right? The, the clock is ticking. And at some point, the founder of the current leaders are going to age out of their current roles. And then what? And the other is just one of my mentors a long time ago said, uh, one, he said he's going to write a book with the title, Just Options. And the theme is he or she with the most options often wins. And when you think about succession, if you bet on one horse 
you know, your odds aren't great, but if you have multiple options, if you've invested in developing those multiple options, you're much better off in the long term because some of those folks are going to emerge to sort of take up the mantle and lead the lead the business or lead a function or, or whatever whatever it may be. So continuing on that theme, just in terms of best practices, I'd love your perspective, Denise, on you spend a lot of your time in the market with clients kind of working to develop some of these programs designed intentionally to address these issues that were pointed out in the survey, but would love to see the things that you've noticed really move the needle when it comes to development and employee engagement. Absolutely. And I, I love that. I love that concept of options. If we could have more options in that pipeline, that would be great. You, you said it really well, Scott, the, the, the overarching best practice that ties all the others together is this idea of intentionality. So no matter what they're investing in, no matter how much they want to invest or the time, they're making sure that everything they do to build the business new SOPs, the development of company vision, core values, long-term collective goals, development programs, training initiatives, whatever it is that they that they connect in some ways, that they're thoughtful about where they're putting their time and their money and their energy. A great way to make the most of their investment across the business is to make sure that one, we're communicating it, that the people in the organization know about it. I don't know how many times We've heard that from presidents, from C-suite executives, from HR directors saying, yeah, we're doing all of these things. And so I don't know why it's coming up on the surveys that, that we don't offer any of these things. Do not make the mistake of not communicating all of the good work that you are doing. Make sure that they that we're really intentional about letting the masses know, hey, we're thinking about this. We're working on it. We're doing these things. And they're they're connected, right? They're not just a bunch of different things that we're putting various amounts of energy into. We're connecting the dots. We're making sure we pull them all together. Beyond that, I would say best-in-class organizations that, that we work with, that I've seen, have three things in common. The first one is that they are building a learning culture or they are learning organizations, meaning that they, they understand and demonstrate the importance of investing in their talent consistently capturing lessons learned, encouraging mentorship across all levels. They know how to regenerate and leverage expertise across the organization. So this is one of the best things they can do because they're consistently building that, what we would call G3 leadership. We're not just investing in the next generation, we're investing in their next generation. We're really thoughtful about saying, hey, in addition to building these skills for you, we want to encourage you to start building the skills that you'll need to build the skills in the next generation. That's how long-running, best-in-class organizations really think about development across the full lifespan of a company. The second thing that we see best-in-class organizations do is they plan for that future succession. So just as I mentioned, it's not just at the senior most. It's not just, oh, I started this company and I'm thinking to leave in three years. We estimate it should take seven to 10 years of planning to really do succession right. And while you're at it, start thinking about this pool. You mentioned options, Scott, this pool of people that you're developing. Only one of them or, or a couple of them are actually going to be able to ascend to that level. So build them together, create what we would call a cohort, a cohesive group amongst them, bring in some of the people that they'll need to develop to, to fill in their roles and so on and so forth. 
being really intentional about succession planning. What does this look like for the long term? Start now. I would say it will take longer than you think it does. And organizations that do this have a huge step forward, especially when times of turbulence arrive and seem to be always at our doorstep lately. The third piece of that is really this idea of engagement and connectivity. So you probably have heard about engagement. The talent survey mentions engagement. It seems like more and more we're talking about this idea of engagement. Why? Because it's one of the most powerful levers for all kinds of performance metrics. Hard-edged performance metrics like safety, performance, retention, profitability. I know that's something that people sit up and notice. Engagement has been tied to all of those things. And it's one of the few things when we talk about learning and development that we can really measure, right? We can we could say, hey, how engaged are the people in this in this organization? How engaged is this team? Wherever we want to focus. We put some time and intentionality around developing, and then we assess again. We say, what moves the needle here? What are the things that are really helping us attract and retain the types of talent that we need and will need in the future? And one of the most powerful mechanisms for increasing engagement that we found has been the idea of building these cohorts or groups across the organization deep relationships, organic and authentic relationships across the organization, whether it be in the leaders that you're developing to move up into the C-suite or the ones that are going to fill their roles or so on and so forth in succession to, hey, how do we put more intentionality around building field and office communication and relationships? Anything that we that we see as a challenge or an opportunity across the organization, we've seen tremendous value in, in connecting those groups together, putting them together, developing them together, and then watching their engagement and natural mentorship together really rise. Of the three things you mentioned, your comment about the best-in-class firms really figure out how to regenerate and leverage expertise. It seems like the cohort program, depending on the composition of the program and who's involved, is a great way to do that. You know, How do you take some of these senior folks that are going to be moving on in the next several years or so and how do you put them together in a cohort of folks that need to soak up all that expertise that might not otherwise get the opportunity? Absolutely. And it might harken back to thinking about mentorship programs, which we, we hear a lot about. The benefit of a mentorship program is, hey, I mean, it seems to solve so many things and we do it in-house. We create a matrix or some sort of mechanism for pairing senior leaders with more next generation or junior talent. And we push them together and we say, go and teach the juniors all the things that you know. And and juniors enjoy the opportunity to, to build and, and develop yourself and look at how great we are. We do this. In theory, it is wonderful. In practice, mentorship programs are really a challenge. They tend to either be too complex. There's so many moving parts and pieces. What do we really need to develop? Who should, how should we pair people together? How do we make sure that they're meeting regularly? How do we track what they're doing and what they're saying? All the way down to the other side of it, which is when they're too organic. We just assume that people will meet up. We assume that they're going to be on the right track, that they're matched up appropriately. And we assume that those senior mentors have the capability to really pass along their, their expertise in a way that the 
that the next generation can pick it up and learn about it. It's, it's just very hit or miss. And so oftentimes we see those types of programs or projects really fall through the cracks, either because they're too complex for us to keep it going and they just require too much manpower or they're just hit or miss and eventually they fall off. A cohort program allows for this type of natural mentorship where people get to know each other. They spend time together. They have a deeper understanding about the challenges and the aspirations of one another. And they naturally fall into a place of, hey, you're actually pretty nice to talk to. You're interesting. You have a lot of cool expertise. Would you mind having coffee? Let's meet up. Sharing that kind of more authentic connection has been shown to not just develop higher levels of engagement, but actually to start that flywheel of development in an organization where people are naturally drawn together. If I have an issue, if I have a challenge, I have a deeper connection with these people here and I have resources now to reach out to instead of becoming frustrated or just trying to figure it out or relying on my manager who may be a great manager and may not be. So now we just have, in your words, Scott, more options. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the first thing that came to mind was this theory of reciprocity, right? I'm assuming that if somebody has been mentored and had has had a positive mentor-mentee relationship, that they're more likely to pay it forward. So when they are in a senior role, that they're more likely to take the time in investing in others if they've had that experience personally. Is that Have you found that to be true? It's such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea, again, goes back to let's communicate about it. Let's share what we're doing but also help them to see that, that this opportunity is an opportunity for them to continue their own development. DDI put out a global leadership forecast report a few months ago, and, and it stated that 93% of employees stated that they would stay with their employer if their employer invested in their development. If we're providing opportunities for them to be developed in this more formal program, but also to continue their development through the connections they make through those programs, that's something, again, that we should be communicating and celebrating because we want them to see, hey, we put you in the place to develop these deep relationships because we're investing in your development. As, as you've been describing some of these characteristics of best-in-class firms, the thing that came to mind for me is just this is a communication and really a recruiting effort. It's recruiting the ones that are already on the payroll. I think too often we think about or leaders think about recruiting in the sense of how do we go attract talent that's not on our platform? How do we convince them to come on board? Well, you've already got a team that's already made a conscious decision to join the team. What are we doing to invest in them, to recruit to them, to continue to essentially, I don't want to say sell, but communicate all the things that the employer is doing to invest in those folks? Denise, just shifting gears, I'd, I'd love to get your take on the question we often get from clients is, okay, well, what's if we invest these dollars or these resources here, what's the return we could expect to get on that investment? Yeah, it's a great question. Oftentimes we do hear people focusing on where do we get these people? Where are they? Could we, should we go to these schools? Should we go to these job fairs? Should we, how are we poaching people, right? What are all those mechanisms for getting out there and luring people to the organization? You have people at your organization right now who I promise you are being underutilized. So the first thing I usually have clients do is to think about what are the real levers in your project cycle from office to field, wherever it is, that are really your profit pockets? What are the places where you're saying, 
we need people in these roles to really show up. Now, ideally, that's everywhere, right? But where are the ones that really makes a big difference? And then focusing on those roles to say, which person or people, if they left tomorrow, would leave a, a hole bigger than the size of the role itself, right? Who are those who are those culture carriers? Who are the ones who really have a followership regardless of what their role is? What are those roles? Well, who are those people who we really cannot lose? Think about those people and then think about the cost of replacing those people. How much would it cost to find someone with that capability, with that followership or you know, that, that really brings the culture to the forefront, reinforces the things that we want reinforced, does the work at a high level? What's the cost of finding and training up somebody? So usually organizations who are really thoughtful about how they're measuring their ROI, they have a number in mind for the average number at any level of the organization that it costs to attract and retain somebody. So that's one way to think about, okay, what's the, what should be the cost of really developing or moving the needle in some of these areas? We have a client I've been working with for a really long time. They're a mid-sized GCCM, focusing most of their work in the Northeast. They regularly track their programs based on retention. And like most organizations, they have seen an uptick in attrition since the pandemic. Before the pandemic, they were about at a 5% attrition, and that's attrition that they didn't want to happen. We're not looking for 0% attrition because some people need to exit the organizations. Not every hire is a great hire. Not everyone's a good fit. But who are the ones that are leaving that we really wished would stay? So they were at about a 5% pretty steadily before the pandemic since 2021, they've seen an uptick in that to 12%. However, they also track the people who go through their cohort program. So they have a cohort program where they bring leaders across the organization together, 20 to 25 people, and they intentionally develop them. They assess them. They have development. They meet once a quarter for a year, year and a half. And then they graduate and then they go into the next cohort. They're on their third or fourth cohort, I believe now. And those people are the ones that they've said, hey, those are the ones in that bucket of if they left, they're leaving a bigger hole than what the role is. We definitely can't lose them. Of all of the people that have gone through those programs for them, they've lost zero. So 0% attrition in those groups, which for them is very valuable. And it gives an indication of how retention can really drive those ROI numbers. That's a great example. It's not just the individual when he or she leaves. It's the what, what are the second and third order effects of that? When he or she leaves, who else is leaving with them, whether they're going to the same place or not? But who else look to those folks as their mentor, their sponsor, that sort of things? Well, yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, Scott, another benefit of connecting people across different levels, creating more options, more opportunities, deeper connections beyond just the people that they work with. It makes me think about an organization. It's a global organization that I was working with, really challenged in terms of their attrition, just seeing people leave left and right. They had chosen to develop people really in their regional areas. So no cross pollination, if you will. In some of their regions, they had some really strong managers and leaders. In other regions, they were markedly less so, less capable. 
and having some real challenges. The benefit for the region with the with the really capable manager, the people who've been there for a really long time, is that they were having a really great experience and learning a lot and very invested. The problem is because they weren't interacting deeply with anybody outside of that region. When the day came when that leader left, their entire department went with them because the connectivity that the people in that region felt was, and the loyalty was to that manager, to that person that had been developing them as opposed to the company. And so we want to find ways to, to help people stay, to see that they have options beyond just the leader or the region or the project that they're comfortable with and finding ways to give them more access and more visibility of those things will help them to be more sticky to the organization. That's great. Well, Denise, in, in closing, what's the biggest takeaway you hope listeners walk away from this conversation with? First, just an acknowledgement of, I know based on all of the things that are happening right now in terms of the markets and financials, there's a lot of turbulence happening right now in the world. And it feels potentially counterintuitive to take this time to invest in talent development. But this is what sets the foundation for every enduring organization. This is the opportunity to set yourself up for the future. And we've seen it time and time again. So I think the first one would just be an encouragement that now is the time to lean in on identifying, assessing, developing your talent pipeline, really getting thoughtful and intentional about succession with the understanding that it will take longer than you think it's going to take. And when you think about the risks involved in moving your organization into the future without a really clear plan for who's going to be leading the organization, who's going to be leading the field, who's going to be leading the office, who's going to be running and doing the work. It's a considerable risk. So I would just say, in case you weren't already feeling the pressure, now's the time to do it. There are so many things that we don't know about the future outlook, but one of the things we do know is that best-in-class organizations have been preparing for this war on talent already. So they're making those preparations in order to be competitive and to, to be able to consistently show up and do the work that, that you love to do. You're going to need people who are engaged and ready to do it as well. You know, the same mentor that talked to me about options and the importance of options also made an observation that I've also found to be true over, over time, and that's that his experience is the best, the best firms, the best performing firms are those that view themselves as a going concern meaning we're going to be here tomorrow, next year, five years, 10 years from now. There'll be economic cycles in, in between, but we're going to be here and we're going to invest accordingly versus where I think many industry firms that, that we've run into view themselves as a collection of projects, which is very easy to do in a, in a construction environment, right? Because it is a business of projects, but it's a mindset shift. One's a growth mindset, one's a scarcity mindset. We don't know when the next project's going to come down the pike. So we can't invest in this. We can't do that. We certainly saw that with the Great Recession. One of the first PL items to get cut was training and education and recruiting and all those sorts of things. So I think it's a good it's a good reminder as folks head into this you know next cycle whenever that does finally get here in terms of just how how leaders may think about this time around differently than they did last time. I, absolutely, I love that the idea of that growth mindset and and many clients that I've talked to, especially in the last year or so, reflect back on the choices that they made maybe at the beginning of the pandemic or they go back to the great recession and how hard it was for them to ramp back up to to get up to where they were 
And many of them have said, I don't want to make the same mistakes. I don't, it feels the same. My urge is the same, right? right. To pull back. And I, I, I think that's one of the, a really powerful opportunity for us all to look back and say, what are the choices that I'd made when, when deciding how, how much to invest and, and which way to pivot? What are the things that worked? What are the things that kept us in the game? And, and what are the things that could have made us more competitive today? Because this is our opportunity. Great. Well, Denise, thank you so much for being here. I think we'll, we'll close there, but it was always great to talk with you. Really appreciate all the insights you shared today and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure. Please join us next month for another insightful episode on exit strategies. There are primarily four ways to exit a privately held business. You can sell to a third party. You can ESOP the business. You can transition the business internally to family or non-family members, or you can liquidate. We're going to talk about the first three. Joining me on the podcast will be three managing directors from FMI Capital Advisors, our investment banking group. We'll have Alex Miller, co-lead of our contractors and construction services M&A practice. We'll have Nathan Perkins, leads our ESOP practice. And we'll have Matt Godwin, who leads our ownership transition practice. And please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss another episode.